You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. In the time before Christ, the Jews went through a time of exile. While in exile, they would build temples scattered away from their homeland. During that time, a city named Ephesus was created by the Greeks and taken by the Romans. Roman rulers would connect the world with Rhodes. Paul was able to capitalize on both. Scattered Jewish temples connected by the Roman Empire Rhodes which led Paul to Ephesus, where he pastored for a while, left and then wrote them the letter, titled Ephesians. The lie is that things will always be the way they are. Broken people, broken churches. The truth is that you can become a new man with a new heart and a new mind. The people who follow Christ can be one body, one church, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father to all. Ephesians. Good morning, Redemption City. How are we doing? Good. Good. Oh, man, it's been a while. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. If you are visiting today, um, my name is um, Brandon, and I'm an elder, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption City, and we are really glad that you are here. You've come on a great day. We are launching our Ephesians series, and um, this is an amazing time for you to understand more and more about who God is and experience the truth of God. Now, if you've been regularly attending our church um, here on Sundays, I really do hope you are growing deeper in your relationship with Jesus and that the Lord might be stirring up your affections to consider this to be a safe place for you to call your home church. And if you are a covenant member here of our church, it's my hope that you are continuing to experience the beautiful fruit of what occurs when you enter into a relationship, a covenant relationship with a group of people where you get to be responsible for them and they get to be responsible for you because there's no safer place. Hear what I'm saying? There's no safer place than to be in the design and in the will of God and belonging to a church in a covenantal type of a way is a part of God's design and it's a part of his will. Now, um, we're, we're starting a whole new thing. This is not the DNA series. This is the Ephesians series. And so we're going to have sort of a little family meeting time right now. Is that okay? Okay. And we're going to be in this family meeting. We're going to talk about three important questions that um, I believe um, are important for you to know why I ask this question every single time I come up here and we start service. So here's the first one. Why do you say, maybe you've thought this, why do you say good morning and how are we every single time you start the service? Well, I say that because a loving family is going to be on the screen for you, cares to inquire. Think about that. Um, Think about your own home. The most loving thing you can do with your children, the most loving thing your children can do with you is to inquire. Mom, how are you doing? Babe, how is your heart? And so I want to inquire before I say anything about, I want you to think, where is my internal atmosphere? Am I good? Before I interact with the living word of God, how am I doing? That's your opportunity to ask yourself. When I say, how are you? How are you doing? Okay. Here's the second question. Why do you then, Pastor Brandon, encourage me to respond back in the middle of service? Like, that's weird, right? Like, well, actually it's not weird. I'm encouraging you to respond back to me. You ready? Because a healthy family exchanges communication. You tracking with me? A family talk together. It's not supposed to be one direction. Um, there, periodically throughout the message, I will actually say things in the scripture and then I'm going to say, amen. And then I kind of pause for a second and I give you the opportunity. And it's like an inviting opportunity for you to respond back and to say, amen in return, right? Because when you do that, it's your verbal and it's your audible agreement that we are in unity about what the word of God is saying. Amen. 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 
man, that is our Christ-centered rally. It's an awesome thing as the people of God. When you see a football team come together or a basketball team and they come into the huddle and they go, one, two, three, break, one, two, three, let's go Knights. This is them saying we are unified. We are coming together for one goal, one mission. We are putting self to the side. We are lifting up team and we're going to get this victory. When we say amen together as the people of God, we're saying we're putting self to the side. We're saying yes to Christ's mission and we're doing it together. Amen. Amen. Okay. Here's the last part. Why do you then, Pastor Brandon, encourage me to say that I'm doing good? Or that I'm doing, I'm kind of leading you that way, right? It's not what we're going to say, like, I'm doing horrible, right? That, that doesn't really work, right? It doesn't play well in service, right? Well, I am encouraging to say you're doing good and well or awesome. Um, even if maybe you've had a terrible week and maybe you had some tragedies. Am I encouraging you to fake it? Absolutely not. I'm never encouraging you to fake where you're at. Remember, our motto is, it is okay to not be okay. God meets us where we are. And so will we. It's, it's our motto. It's on the front page of our website. We believe that. But listen, even though it is 100% okay not to be okay, the Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christian resolves not to stay that way. That is what the Bible tells When we have Christ in us, hey, we have trials and tribulations. But in Christ, we have been called to be victorious victorious over them. So we don't want to fake anything, but I want you to invite Christ into your, uh, into your circumstances to transform it. Now consider this with me um, in Psalms chapter 23, verse six. We're not even in the message yet. We're just, you already know. Here we go. Ready? Psalms 23, verse six. Surely goodness hmm, and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is a powerful verse. Think about, this is, this is leading saying, surely goodness will. Not that it might, but that it will. Even when you don't feel, and even when I don't feel like I'm having a good week, we can proclaim that the week is good because of the promises of God that will follow. He has promised that to the people of God. Our goodness is not predicated on our circumstances. It's predicated upon Christ and what he's done for you and what he's done for me. So it doesn't mean that we can never admit that we're struggling. That's why we're going to have our city groups. That's why we've launched Dead Night Men. I have enjoyed our men's Dead Night. We have already taken steps, being vulnerable, sharing where we're not okay, where we need support. There is a time and place for that. But, but here's, the, here's the thing. This is the one time a week on Sunday mornings for about an hour and 45 minutes, unless I'm preaching, they go a little bit longer, whatever, where we come together and we say we are good and we're remembering that we're good despite when we don't feel that we're good because God says so. Amen? That is an awesome thing. So I want to invite you in those moments when I'm saying, hey, how are we doing? Everything is intentional. I'm not just saying that. I'm asking you because I'm giving you the opportunity to remind yourself that you're good. So don't say it flippantly. Don't just say it like that, but ferociously and defiantly against Satan, proclaim despite whatever muck and mire you are in, that you are good in Christ. Let me tell you, I've had a terrible week. I had an accident. If you don't know, I was injured in 2012. I have a brain stem injury. I have Lyme disease. I have all these things. There's a reason why I'm sitting. And I had a stumble um, about three days ago. I have um, not gotten more than four hours of sleep um, in the last three days. I've had help. My mom was over. She was doing compressions, squeezing my legs. My wife has been a whole bunch of things. It has been a terrible week, but I promise you, I am not being fake when I say that I am good in the Lord. And I want to invite you to believe that in your life. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, I want you to open them to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in there in just a little bit. If you don't have your own Bible, we do have Bibles to the left of you in the windowsill. And we just ask that you would place those back when you're done. And so we're about to magnify God in the Ephesians series titled, Our Story into God's Story. And this is going to be all about discovering who we are in light of Christ. And here's going to be our aim, okay? This is going to be our aim. No matter who you are, no matter if you have um, read Ephesians a million times, if you've never read it before, if you've been in seminary, you have a doctor's degree, or you're opening the Bible for the first time, our aim is that each person would have an encounter 
and an experience in this book like you've never had before. And I'm particularly speaking to those who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. And sometimes we kind of fall into the trap of the word becoming just kind of white noise. We've read it. We've heard already. The word of God is never white noise. And so open your ears, open your heart and expect Christ to give you an encounter like you've never had before. Now, today we're going to be beginning in part one, which is titled Foundations and Proclamations. And it's really all about setting the stage for us to be able to answer this important question. All right. And it's right here. It's just three words, but it's, it's pretty big. Who are we? Or rather, even more specifically for you as an individual, who are you? In Christ, who are you called to be as a biblical woman of God? Who are you called to be as a biblical man of God? Who is your family called to be as they submit to God? Who are we called to be as the people of God? And who are we called to be as a local expression of God's church? So before we can jump in, though, and jump immediately to a bunch of applications, which our church culture in America is, is addicted to, I want to set a proper foundation Okay, just like we did in biblical manhood and womanhood, so that we can get all that God has for us. And this means that I'm going to work really hard to lay the foundation today. We're going to spend some significant time laying a foundation. And I'm going to invite you to work really hard with your pencil, with your notes. I want you to think. I want you to put your, your thinking cap on. I want you to work. And we're going to work hard together to get underneath this book and we're going to do that by having a five-part mini intro series, okay? So I'm trying to lay this whole thing out for you. We're going to spend five parts setting a mini intro into the series, and then we're going to dive into the series over the course of the next couple months. All right? Are you guys ready to do that? Yep. All right, so let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. We're going to listen to that. I want you to hear the word of God. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. There is so much truth and hope found within these scriptures. In fact, there's so much truth. There's so much hope. It's going to take us about five weeks just to work through that text. So let's dive in. Let's do this and let's pray. Bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we're about to go on an amazing journey, an incredibly amazing journey through the epic book of Ephesians, learning truly what it means to move out of our story into your story, God. Therefore, we thank you for your son that makes it so possible to follow you, to know you as our father. Jesus said, I am the way, but he didn't just say he was gonna show us the way. Father, he said that he would literally be the way and the light. 
praise God. So thank you for this generous act of grace and mercy upon us. Now, Father, please, wisdom. Father, I'm begging for wisdom so that I would speak well and, not av- and I would avoid wasting this precious gift of time and this precious gift you call life. Give me words to say that when people leave, they will be thinking about you first above all things. God, do something that is so real that it could only come from your Holy Spirit and that it would lead to miracles in people's lives, like just like we hear in the scriptures. I pray that what is done is done by the Holy Spirit and not out of any of my cleverness, God. I put myself to the side as an available, willing instrument for your kingdom. But above all things, I pray that you would stir people's affections into radical obedience, God. Glad, radical obedience is a good, good thing, Father. So be big for us today, Lord. It's because of your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So as we take a look now at the book of Ephesians, what I want, you, what I want to do for a moment is I want to just kind of um, enter us into the story in a really safe way by getting into the time frame of what's going on, okay? And so we have, we have the latest foundation now. So first, we have Paul, who began his writings, okay? These writings, these letters, these epistles, or we call them books. He, did, he started his first one in 51 or 54 AD with first and second Thessalonians. Okay, just, just let's hold, let's keep holding all this intention. He did this first and second Thessalonians. This is his first one between 51 and 54 AD. Now, let me tell you why that's significant. Paul came into a relationship with Jesus on the road to Damascus. You may have heard that story, and that happened almost 10 to 15 years prior to him even beginning any missionary journey. Okay, so you got both of those things. This means that there was over a decade. Imagine that. There was over a decade between um, the time that Paul was just growing and maturing and figuring out what God was trying to actually accomplish in his life. So when, when, when Paul met Jesus on Damascus, there was a decade before he did any ministry. Think about that. That's, that's going to mean a lot. So this means that the book of Ephesians, which comes even later, is at least 25 to 30 years after Paul's conversion. Are you tracking? That's 30 years. So we're reading an epistle, unlike most of the other epistles, from a very, very matured Paul. Paul matured like every one of us did. He was maturing. And this is one of his most matured, deep letters. Okay. Now, sometimes we can be discouraged in our own lives when we don't perceive and understand what God is doing in our lives. Imagine 10 years. We get upset because we go to church, we have a big moment, and then we spend time like, what are you trying to do, God? Can you imagine being on the road to Damascus and and meeting Jesus, and he blinds you, you have this whole experience, and then you're like, wow, I'm I'm God's man, I'm going to do all these things, and I I must have this big call in my life. And then there are 10 years of nothingness. 10 years, but it wasn't nothing. He was being prepared. And so in the seasons of your life, when you can't perceive and receive what God might be doing, trust and wait. He may be preparing you for something amazing, and it may come through difficulty. Now, one of the things I hope that we're going to begin to see more and more throughout this entire series is that as we enter into this biblical narrative, God is never late. Let me say that again. God is never late, and he is always, always, always on time. Okay, let's jump back in. So by the year 61 to about 63 AD, we have Paul in what's called light chain arrest. These three words on the screen are really important. Light chain arrest. He was arrested in Jerusalem for allegedly, this is me and my quotation fingers, um, taking a Gentile beyond where he was supposed to go in the temple. There were Jewish laws and customs that did not allow Jew, um, Gentiles at a certain point into the temple, and they were accusing Paul of doing that. Okay, and so historically, we, I, don't, I don't believe he did anything, but that's what he, was, what he was accused of. So then we learn in the book of Acts that we, um, that Paul goes, um, I'm sorry, we learn in the book of Acts that Paul goes to Caesarea by the sea where he stands trial in front of Festus and in front of Felix, in front of Herod, Agrippa II for this situation. And so Paul makes an appeal to Caesar. Now, um, in Roman culture, when you would make an appeal to Caesar, that would stop 
all trials happening at the local level, and then it would then be transferred to Caesar. Only a Roman citizen could do that, could make that appeal, okay? All this is important, and, and we've got to just take that time to keep building this out. So Paul, because he uses his Roman citizenship, makes an appeal. Caesar grants that he will hear. So Festus, Felix, Herod Agrippa, all of these um, trials ceased, and he was now sent to Caesarea by the sea to have his court case basically transferred. Um, <clears throat> about halfway through these arguments, right, so he meets with Caesar, he goes there, and he goes to the Tiber River. Now, I want you to look at this on your screen, the Tiber River, and I want you to notice how the river kind of, um, kind of matched the roads and kind of went all the way throughout the city, and this was important. People would travel both by road and by this river, and so many times they were traveling across this road because literally hundreds were coming and going because of their appeals, and Paul was one of them. Now, let's talk a little bit about this light chain house arrest and why this is so important. We often think of Paul imprisoned. Everybody kind of know that Paul was in prison. We think about that in an American context with Paul behind bars and he's sitting there. He can't come and go as he pleases. People can't see him, but that's not actually what Paul was experiencing. And it is foundationally important for us to understand that in the book of Ephesians. Um, the, the, he was under light chain house arrest. And now this is important because here's what you need to understand. In Rome, when you're under light chain house arrest, you cannot come and go as you please. You have a Roman guard who is assigned to you. Are you tracking? This, this Roman guard is assigned to you. And it is the Roman guard's responsibility to watch over you. Now, Technically, that Roman guard could let you leave the city wherever you want to go, but here's the catch. Whenever the Roman emperor Nero would call upon you, you, have to re you would have to report immediately and you could not be late. If that person did not, uh, did not show up for their appeal exactly on time, the Roman guard would be put to death. And so the Roman guard had every incentive, as you can imagine, to not let these people under light chain house arrest venture too far from the palace. In fact, oftentimes the Roman guards would attach themselves literally with a chain to the person they were responsible for. And you, you honestly would not get very far from the palace because they, their lives were at risk, their families' lives were at risk. And so this was called light chain house arrest. You were not a threat. They had different kinds of prisons for that. If they thought that Paul was a flight risk, he would have been in a different situation. Now, why is that so important? Because Paul was under house arrest, he can't come and go as he pleases, but people can come and see him as they please. People can come in and meet him. People can come out and meet him. Are you, are you tracking with me? That's not what could happen in a, an American prison. You can't just come and go as you want, but people can come and see him whenever they wanted to, and they would visit Paul where he was at. So while Paul is under light chain house arrest, you have different representatives from multiple churches coming to visit him. Now you're starting to see, we always hear about these people that were coming, Timothy at different times. It was not because he was in prison behind bars in that way. He was under light chain house arrest. And actually, historically, Paul did some movements even under light chain house arrest. Now, this is really, really important. I want you to see this. Even in Paul's adversity, like he's literally, his life could be on the line. What is he spending his time doing? <laughs> Paul's spending his time taking initiatives and finding creative ways to make an impact for God's kingdom out of his joy. Not because he has to, but because he desires to. He desires to. And what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? I mean, it's so easy when we are in pain or we are experiencing trials or we are experiencing some type of suffering to become self-centered and to become self-preserving like of ourselves. But we are called as a people of God, even in our own tragedies, to focus on the kingdom. And this is what we see Paul doing in a radical, radical way. It's what I'm trying to do in my life. Even when I have every reason to lay down in that bed, it's like, God, I want to wring out this life. At the end of the day, my body, whether it's in pain or not in pain, it's going to end the same way. 
in the ground, dust. The only thing that's going to last is my soul and eternity and my spirit. And I want to use all that you've given me until I cannot do it any longer. And this is what we see Paul doing. Listen to me, the people of God, listen, healing often comes largely by pouring yourself out, not protecting yourself. The Bible communicates that loudly throughout the entire biblical narrative. I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 58, verses 10 through 11 with me right now. This is my life verse, and it's on the screen, um, and it's been on my wall for the last seven or eight years since my injury. And this is my life mission. This is what the word of the Lord says in Isaiah 58. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, when you feel good, when everything's great, when your stocks are doing well, it's not what it says. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. Wow. When you pour out, your light rises up and your gloom, your trial will seem as the noonday. What is the noonday? The highest point of the light, the highest point of the sun. And the Lord will guide you continually. As you keep pouring yourself out for those who are less fortunate than you, God will continually guide you. And here's what's beautiful. Satisfy your desire in the most scorched places in your heart, the most scorched places in your life. And he will make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden. Wow. Imagine that. Get that imagery. A water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. What this is communicating is if you pour your life out, you're going to have life and joy abundantly. This is our call as the people of God. And so who are we? This is who we are. Despite our own tragedies and trials, we are people called to take an initiative to gladly serve other believers in the local church, both for God's glory and our satisfaction. This is who we have been called to be. This is who we've been called to be. We're going to see that in a real way in the book of Ephesians. Okay, now it gets even better. Now, while Paul is literally under light chain house arrest, we have these different representatives that are coming out, right? But we also have these guards that Paul is explaining the gospel to in his own suffering. He's spending his time not trying to get out of prison, not trying to get out of his trials, not trying to get... Listen, we are, especially in America, we are so afraid of pain. We are so afraid to be uncomfortable. We go out of our way. We have billions of dollars in pharmaceuticals. We do anything and everything. The sniffle, 15 medications. We have no ability to stand pain anymore. In second, third world countries, pain is a part of life. Pain is a part of my life. And because of our aversion to pain, even though Christ has called us into pain, pick up your cross and die daily for him, we miss the whole point of both the gospel and the great commission that we have been called to. So while all this is happening, Paul spends his energy, his time, his resources, not to circumvent his pain, but to glorify God. I'm going to say it again. Paul does not spend his time, his resources, his intellect, or his devotion to ending his pain. But he does spend his time for the glory of God. What does that mean for us? So he's spending his time and he has these guards here and he's explaining the gospel to them. But here's the thing. He was explaining the gospel to the guards that were attached to him. I want you to remember that word. It's going to be super important in this sermon. They were attached to him. Okay, that's the key word. As we continue to explore both the main idea of the book of Ephesians, we're going to sort of do like three things at once, right? So it's going to, that's why today's really important. We're going to be working through the book of Ephesians faithfully to what it says. We're going to be doing a character study of what Paul is going through so we can see what we might learn from that. And then we're going to collide Paul's story. We're going to take the book of Ephesians. We're going to collide them together. We're going to see if God has something beautiful beautiful for us. So we all have people just like Paul who are attached to us in for various reasons. Think about it. Unbelie unbelievers that are attached to us 
in our life. Maybe they're attached because you work with them at the coffee shop or you work with them at school or you work in a warehouse and you have, under, you have these unbelievers that are attached in your life. You didn't place them there. God has attached them through the proximity of your life. Maybe these attachments are in your neighborhoods. Maybe they're in your friendship circles. Maybe you have a friend of a friend. And so we all have unbelievers in our life. They're attached in our life. And the point is that when we think about unbelievers that are attached to us naturally within our lives, here's my question. Are we sharing the gospel with them? Because Paul spent his time under light chain house arrest preaching the gospel to those who were attached to them. He wasn't trying to be, you know, marked by that gospel and going all over the place. They were attached to him. They were right in front of them. And he was like, I'm going to share the gospel with you. Who are the people that are attached in your life? Who are the people that God has attached in your life, in your neighborhoods, in your circles that do not know Jesus? And are you sharing the gospel with them or are you wasting opportunities? Are you wasting opportunities? Because Paul refused to waste his suffering while he was under light chain house arrest. In fact, not only did he not waste his time, it led to an entire ministry of unbelievers in the household of the Roman Empire that came into relationship with Christ. Paul says in the end of the book of Philippians in chapter 4, verse 22, um, this is how he ends the letter. Think about the implications of this. Roman was the most secular place ever. Ready? All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. Are you tracking with me? The, the book of Philippians ends with Paul declaring that the unbelieving nation, basically, of Rome, in the Caesar's house, they all became believers because Paul was on a mission, not because he was this radical guy that was like, he's so bold. He has, it's because he had charisma and he's so outgoing. I'm an introvert. Actually, Paul was attached to them because of his pain and circumstances. And all he did was respond to the people in arm's reach length and a household in Caesar came into a relationship with Jesus. That is beautiful. We are called into that same posture as the people of God. But that requires you and I to take a risk. Are we willing to take a risk out of our comfort to the people that are attached to us? So who are we? Despite real pain and losses within our lives, because we have them, we are a people called to display faith and offer hope through our trials to those attached to us, recognizing that God is most glorified when we do so. Our pain is never wasted. Our pain is never wasted. Now, I want you to think deeply with me because this should be extremely comforting news. If we talked about being marked by going, right? Being marked by going. And we came back, I think like three days later and we had like a little workshop. And, and one of the things that we talked about was it's hard. How do I, how do I do that? How do I know who to reach out to? How do I know who to share the gospel with? I want this to be comforting news. You don't have to go across the world. You don't have to have the most outgoing personality. All you have to do is to slow down long enough and say, God, who have you naturally attached in my life? Because I go to the same doctor every time, my same dentist, whatever. Who are, who are my natural attachments? And am I sharing my hope with them? But that requires a risk. Amen. We have to be willing to take that risk. The key word, as you see in red, is attached. We're going to keep talking about this attachment. So <clears throat> I do want to say this. I'm not saying that we never, ever should reach out to a random stranger. There's a time and place for that. But what we see more often in the Bible, whether it's Jesus, the disciples, the Apostle Paul, is we see so many times Jesus is being faithful to the call that is on his life. He came to do the Father's will. He's moving from city to city to city intentionally. And as he goes into the city, as he goes into this temple, he stops with whoever becomes attached to him and he ministers to them. So it's a both and, but we want to focus on our attachments. Okay, let's jump back into the story. So while all this is happening to Paul, okay, so he's under light chain house arrest. He's um, suffering. He's not having his freedom, but yet he's proclaiming the gospel to those who are attached. He's receiving a word from these representatives that are coming and going 
that there are some issues going on in the church of Colossae as well as the church of Ephesus. And so while he's under light chain house arrest, he's going to address a few certain problems that are going on in these churches, right? And, and these problems were quite universal. That's why this book is different. We're going to talk about that. Now, here's some really, really important information to help kind of set the stage of what's going on in this time period of the book of Ephesians, okay? Ephesus was a major jewel. You guys have to know this. Ephesus was a major jewel to Asia, to Asia Minor. Think of it as kind of like a Paris of the Roman world. It was an older city, even then, it was an older city that had many, many, many famous monuments like the Temple of Artemis or also known as the Temple of Diana. It was considered the seventh wonder of the world. It had a, check this out, a 25,000 um, um, seated theater. This is, this is thousands of years ago. Man, the architecture. And it's still standing to today. I mean, they build much better than we do. This was a world-class Roman city with, here's the problem, a lot of Roman citizens who thought that they were world-class people, and, and, and they weren't, and that was part of the problem. So regarding this church in Ephesus, Paul is eager, under light chain house arrest, to address a specific problem going on within the church, because he has all this time on his hands, because he, he can't come and go as he, as he pleases. So what's the dilemma that's compelling Paul to write the book of Ephesians? Well, as these representatives are coming and talking to Paul, they're sharing that there are Jewish Christians that are putting down all the Gentile Christians, and they're saying that they're not as blessed by God. In fact, they're saying that their relationship with God is fraudulent, that they're not real, genuine Christians. They're saying things like, if you really got your act together, if you'd be more like us Jewish believers and you participate in the Sabbath the way we do, if you were circumcised like we are, if you followed our kosher laws the way we do, you'd be more legitimate, but you're, you're not. You're, you're like the other kind. And so basically we have Gentile Ephesian believers who are sort of getting beat down spiritually, but not only beat down spiritually, they were being considered second class citizens. They were not being lifted up as equal in their dignity, remember that, value and worth. They were not being considered equal in their dignity, value, and, and their worth. They were, they were being treated as second-class citizens, and I want you to remember that. I want you to remember second-class citizens. Okay, now I'm going to pivot the story again. This is all going to come together. you got to trust me. So we're going to pivot the story again. We're going to turn the corner, stay with me, and we're going to see a critical thing that's happening as we lay down this foundation of the book of Ephesians. Here we go. I want to jump back into this narrative of what's going on with Paul. Let's talk about the guards right now who are watching him. Have you ever thought about who was watching Paul? Because this is going to be good news. This is going to be everything. I, when I was sitting there studying, I was like, let's, let's look at these guards for a second. Let's do a character study on these guards. Who do you think is responsible for watching Paul? The best, the cream of the cop, the, the cream of the crop of the Roman Empire? Absolutely not. The best Roman soldiers were always put on the front line. You have to understand culturally, Rome, Rome was all about bravado. Okay, so, I mean, for me, I'd be like, thank God, I don't want to be on the front line. I want to be, don't, don't consider me worthy. But in the Roman culture, to be worthy, to be considered a strong family, you get the front line. Because if you win the war, you would, you would take the gold and everything else from the conquering nation that you were coming into, and that's how you became wealthy. So it was a privilege to be on the front line. You still tracking with me? These are not the people that were watching over him. Instead, these were also people who were treated a different, <laughs> a different way. And so this enters into where we talk about Gauls, okay? So here's this picture. I want to show you what a Gaul is. A Gaul were these wild hair, dreaded hair. This is kind of a depiction. They were just wild men, kind of barbarian looking, right? This is kind of sort of the best depiction I can give. And they were considered simple and uncivilized men. Okay, they were considered uncivilized. So you got these Gauls who are being Romanized. They go through a process called Romanization where they are being moved into being a Roman citizen. Okay, now, so you got the Roman soldiers coming into where these Gauls live, these wild hair, kind of uncivilized people. And like typical Rome, they come in, they start building cities and roads and everything in the Gauls area. So the Gauls, the Romans, they fight. 
the Gauls are utterly slaughtered. There was, it was no contest. Now, you might look at these guys and be like, are you kidding me? How did they lose? Well, the Roman technology, you have, to, you have to understand this, was so far superior than anything that the Gauls could do. They were slaughtered. It was not a fight. It, let, let me give you some context for how superior the Roman um, technology was. Okay? The, um, historians say that the Roman technology for weaponry stayed the prominent weaponry until gunpowder was developed. Let me say that again. It was the top technology, what they had then, until gunpowder was developed a thousands of years later. Okay, so it was absolutely no contest. So the Romans kicked the Gauls' butts, and then and they slaughtered their women, they slaughtered their children, but they did one thing. Using their nation-conquering intellect, they said, we're going to keep the strongest Gauls, we're going to keep the only the strongest ones, the strongest warriors, and we're going to Romanize them. We're going to take these, these captains of the Gauls, and we're going to indoctrinate them into our society, and we're going to make them Roman captives, and hopefully make them citizens. Okay, this is really important. Keep tracking with me. In order to do this, they would, be, they would go through schooling, they would kind of go through, honestly, it's a lot of trials and tribulations. They would get beat. They would go through all these things as they were being transferred out of a Gaul mindset, a Gaul mindset into a Roman mindset. So you have these dread-haired bone, you see, you see on the picture, they weren't literally, they, they would conquer, that was their thing, and they would, put, they would put bones on their waist. You have these, these Gauls that are being Romanized and their hair is being cut and they're becoming Roman citizens. But Rome would never put these Gauls on the front line, but only their best soldiers. So the Gauls were made prison watchers. And so Gauls were the primary people that were used under light chain house arrests to watch over people that were going through their appeal with Caesar. Okay, it's going to start coming together. You're going to see where this is going. So you got all these Gauls that are stuck on light chain house arrests, and they're being treated like second class citizens. Who else did I say that about? Remember the Gentile believers who are being treated as second-class citizens? Yep, we went to school, coming to school today. Okay, pay attention because this is going to be really good. I want you to imagine Paul, and he's sitting here in a room under light chain house arrest. And all day long, every single day, he's literally attached by a chain to a gall. This gall has a new name, a Latin name, that he's now using. But he's not really happy. These Gauls are not happy because they're not being treated well and they're being treated as second-class citizens. So Paul is hearing these Gauls, these new Roman citizens, talk about how things aren't fair and how they're being treated as second-class citizens. Now, at the same time, Paul's getting letters and reports from various churches that the Gentiles are not happy about their coming into Christ. You see? Not because they weren't, um, they weren't pleased with Jesus, but they did not feel that they were being treated the same. Are you tracking with me? So what I want you to see is that the book of Ephesians is circling around two realities. Okay, here, here, here's one of them. There's a physical reality that Paul is witnessing within the Gauls. He's witnessing this. Who are unbelievers that are attached to him. They're suffering because they're trying to be considered equal, but they're not being treated equal. That's a physical thing happening. It's happening in his life. He's watching these Gauls, who are Roman citizens, not being treated fairly. At the same time, there's a spiritual reality on, see, um, on the screen, a spiritual reality that the, Paul is receiving these messages regarding the Gentiles, and that the Gentiles aren't also being treated in a spiritual way, and they're being treated as second-class citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Can, can you see this? There's a parallel story of a physical and a spiritual coming into a type of civilization. There were people who were disgruntled because they were not being allowed to become full members of the Roman society. And we have the people of God disgruntled because they could not become a citizen um, of the kingdom of God. They weren't being allowed. So Paul is leveraging. Here, here's where it all comes together. God is inspiring Paul to leverage his experiences and his circumstances and his trials and his tribulations that God has put him in to communicate in this letter a hope to his Christian brothers and sisters. He's, Paul is studying the Roman culture. He's studying the pathway of how Gauls become Romans, and he's using that as language 
throughout the book of Ephesians to communicate in a way that the people of God could understand what God is going to offer them. He's going to talk about how you're going to move out of being a second-class citizen Gentile into being a first-class citizen. So this leads to the next takeaway that I want you to have. Believers and unbelievers alike are all searching for a sense of dignity, worth, and value. All people are searching for and need to find their identity. The Gentiles were disgruntled because they were not secure in their identity. They were not being allowed to be secure in their identity because the Jewish believers were proclaiming that the identity was fraudulent and it did not belong to them. And these Gauls were trying to do all that they could. They cut their hair, they allowed themselves to be Romanized, but they were disgruntled because they were not being allowed to be fully a part of that civilization. The only difference between what the Gauls were going through and the Gentiles is that the Gauls had a hope in something that was not, that is promising to fail them, but the Gentiles were gonna be able to put their hope in something that would not, or someone that would not fail them. So who are we? We are a people called to obtain our identity in something far beyond human systems and institutions. We, as the people of God, do not find our hope in these things. We don't find it in our jobs. We don't put it in our careers. We don't find our identity in our work, in, in people. We don't, find our, we don't find our work in church positions. We find our identity in Christ. And we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at that in a really deep and hopefully faithful way. So let's begin to start landing this plane because today is just setting a foundation for what's going on in the book. I promise we'll get into it. I promise we're gonna, it's just like with biblical manhood. I know we itch for like, okay, what does this mean? And let's go through it. But I really think it's important to be faithful to what's going on. So let's begin to do that. The book of Ephesians consists of only six chapters, believe it or not. And in my particular Bible that I use at home, it only takes up four pages, okay? So it's, it's, it only takes up four pages, six chapters, and I'm not a fast reader. I want you to know that. I am not the fastest reader, and I can tell you that it took me 30 to about 33 minutes to read the entire book, and I want to challenge you to do that. Four pages, 35 minutes. I want to challenge you to do that this week. Um, now, theologian Klein Snodgrass has this to say about the book of Ephesians. Pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document in Christian history. Now, that is a massive statement. There's a lot of good stuff in the Bible. Um, but I want to show you five realities that may prove that Snodgrass is right. Okay, this is the five things that when I was studying the book of Ephesians that I was like, all right, Lord, what are five identifiable things that I can share with the people at Redemption City Church that shows that Ephesians is massive and it really is like no other epistle. It is like no other epistle. Here they are. Number one, Ephesians deepens our understanding of the gospel. I need you to know that, okay? I, I, we cannot just jump in and start reading Ephesians chapter one and, and start breaking it down. I need you to have this foundation. Ephesians deepens our understanding of the gospel. Unfortunately, folks, we are living in a day where there is so much superficiality in Christianity. There's so much. It's all about tradition, church tradition, with no relationship with Christ Jesus. It's all about how much comfort can we have, but it's really not about how much we're willing to sacrifice. It's about pr preference demanding instead of joyful serving. And finally, Unfortunately, American churches are filled with so many doubt-filled Christians who are stuck, stalled, and stagnant in their trials and tribulations, and that we haven't yet learned how to move past them, how to live in our pain, and to glorify God. I want you to remember this. The men and the women that you read about in the Bible have the same diseases and trials and tragedies and mental illnesses and miscarriages and anxieties and everything that we deal with. Please do not think that you are living uniquely in some different era. These men and women struggle with every version of suffering that we had. And so when we read the book of Ruth, when we read the book of Esther, when we read these things, please hold intention that they are like us, we are like them, and we see constant examples of victorious men and women of God when Christ is in the center. Amen?
Amen? Amen. Number two, Ephesians magnifies. Wow. It magnifies the importance of church more than any other New Testament letter. And that is faithful, and that is true. It magnifies the church unlike any other book, any other book in the New Testament. As we discussed in our DNA series just a while ago about covenant family and membership, we are living in a time where church attendance and church membership is considered of no value. It's just an add-on. It is not the center point. And it alarms me more than almost anything else going on in our Christian culture, how little we care about belonging in a faithful way to church. But what we're going to see in Ephesians, and I'm so excited because I love that the word talks for itself, not Pastor Brandon. We're going to see that in Ephesians, we're going to see just how important and central the local church is and why we are called by God to belong to one as a glad member. Listen, <laughs> you're going to see how backwards the biblical narrative is of what they were doing and what we're doing. We live in a time where we literally pick our jobs and our kids' schools, districts, and we do all these things and we say, okay, this is what we want, this is most important, and what's a church in the 15-mile radius that can um, kind of be my spiritual guide? But in the biblical times, it was the church that was the center point and your trades and your jobs and your family centered around that. When you flip that script, everything falls apart. God's church, Christ's church is to be the center of our lives. And as much as that's unpopular, I don't care because that is what the word of God shares. And I have a responsibility to tell you that. Ephesians chapter, I mean, Ephesians chapter three, number three. I'm just ready for, this is going to Ephesians chapter three. All right. Um, number three, Ephesians is the most contemporary book of the New Testament. Now, here's what I'm hoping you do. Because we're not going into a deep, like biblical exhortation today, and I'm setting a foundation. It is my ask of you as your pastor to take this home. And I want you to think about this so that you can come ready. If you um, came with someone or maybe your um, wife was sick today or your husband wasn't able to come or maybe you have a son who's, or a daughter who's attending and they haven't come, would you allow yourself the time? I'm asking as your pastor that you would sit down with your spouse, your child, and you would lay this foundation out with them or encourage them to listen online. It is important before we enter into the text in a faithful way. Now, let's go back to this number three. Ephesians is the most contemporary book of the New Testament. One of the things that you'll notice if you've been reading the Bible for a while is that every, almost every single epistle that Paul writes is to a specific church for a very specific problem that he's addressing. What's a little bit different about the book of Ephesians is that it's a more universal book. It's more universal for all churches. So even though all the epistles are good for us, what makes you, uh, um, the book of Ephesians unique is that it was intended, its intended purpose was for every single church. And that means it's really, really important for us to see what God's trying to communicate through Paul. Number four, Ephesians provides immense grace-filled encouragement. It provides immense grace-filled encouragement. I want you to pay attention for a second. I know you want to write but I just want to lock eyes with you for a second. If you are in a season right now, you don't need to tell me if you are tired. I know that we've been here for a while, but I just need you to listen to me. If you're tired and I'm not talking about sleep deprived because I am that if you're tired in here, I don't know why you're tired. You may be tired because you're striving too much. You may be tired because you're trying too hard. You may be tired of your marriage. You may be tired of being belittled. I don't know why you're tired, but if you're tired, if you're discouraged, if you're lacking hope, I want you to know that this book is going to bless you if you open your mind and your heart, if you just lock in. Your children go to school for eight hours a day. I know that it, you might have forgotten because it might have been a long, long time ago for some of us, but they go to school for eight hours a day and they're asked to pay attention for multiple hours and then they get in trouble with you and me when they don't. I'm asking you to lock in for an hour a week when we come here on Sundays, to focus, to actually do what you're asking your children to do. And I'm telling you, if you do that, 
and you make this a priority and you stop making excuses why you can't make this your priority, you will have an encounter with God. He's ready to meet you where you're at. You just got to open your heart. You do not have to live that way. My joy, I was told at sunrise in many of my coaching appointments when I was coaching and doing pastoral coaching for other pastors, I was often told, Brandon, how do you have so much energy, so much joy with all your suffering? I'm telling you right now, it's not fraudulent. And I have my bad days, but my joy is genuine because of what God's done. I have more joy in my life today than I ever had in my healthy body. And that is not because I think it's cool to suffer. It's because of what God has done in my heart. And I have dedicated my life to doing everything I possibly can to get every other person that is attached to me to experience that in their lives. But you got to lock in. Okay. Number five. Ephesians gets practical, answering basic questions about the Christian life. I love that about the book of Ephesians. You know, one of the most frustrating aspects of growing as a new believer, if there's any new believers in here, or maybe even if you're not a new believer, is trying to figure out this whole thing. How to do it? How do I be a, how am I Christian? What does it look like? How do I do it? It's really, really frustrating at times. And I want you to know that the book of Ephesians, when we get there in a faithful way, will give you so many practical help, so much practical help and answers. This is also one of my favorite books to share with a new believer. So if you are like, you find someone attached to you, a lot of people say go to the book of John. I actually find the book of Ephesians as a great place to turn. It answers a lot of practical questions about who we are as the people of God. Now, here's the last thing I want to share. Oftentimes we hear of the book of Ephesians when you're like kind of reading about the um, Ephesians that is broken into two parts. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. In fact, if you guys are familiar with the Bible Project, it's a really cool uh, ministry that kind of does like, uh, I'm, I'm not really, it's like an illustration and it's, it's really cool. You should check it out. It illustrates the Bible in a narrative of drawings. Um, they even break it down into two parts. And so obviously I think there's a lot of good truth in that. However, I do really believe with all my heart that there's really three segments. And so for our church, we're gonna be looking at it in three segments. And I think it's gonna help us to be even more intentional and faithful. So here, are, here they are. Part one, as we work through it, part one is gonna be through chapters one through three. And, what cha and this is for you to go do. You don't have to wait for me. Trust me, we got many weeks, we're gonna go down deep into this, but on your own, when you do your 30 minute read. Chapters one through three are gonna tell you who you are in Christ. It's all about your identity and your calling as an individual and as a collective believer. So if you ever want to know, who am I in Christ? Look to chapters one through three. That's who you are. Because without an identity of who you are, you're going to be lost. And you're going to live your life in anxiety, trying to figure out who you are all the time. I don't want that for you. Without a calling on your life, I have young men that I'm mentoring right now, and they're trying to figure out their purpose. Without a calling, without a purpose, you will waste your life. Without a calling and a purpose, you will waste your life, but you can't have a calling and you can't have a purpose until you know who you are. You gotta know who you are. And then without an understanding of the church, and if you don't understand how important the church is, then you're just gonna, we're gonna honestly be just a collection of good people having a community group on Sunday mornings. And I don't wanna do that. That's not how I wanna dedicate my days. Part two in the book of Ephesians takes us from chapters four to like the beginning of chapter six. And if you read this section, it's going to describe what we do. What do we do as Christians? I want to make this very, very simple. That's my style. I want you to see the simplicity of God's word. So chapters one through three is who you are. Chapters four through the beginning of six is what you do once you know who you are. This is how you act as a believer. I want you to go notice that on your own as in your family discipleship time. And then finally, part three takes you from the middle of chapter six to about verse 20. We're not going to even do the last three verses of Ephesians. It's just kind of a ending report. Um, chapters 10 through um, chapter, excuse me, verses 10 through 20 is how we defend and endure. Okay. So chapters one through three, who we are, Chapters four through six, what we do once we know who we are, and then chapters six through the end, now that we know who we are and we know what we do, how do we defend that and not allow Satan to take a hold of our lives? How do we not allow Satan to take a hold of our lives? 
And I'm so excited to do that with you over the next couple weeks. Um, as we continue this series, starting next week, we're going to take a deep dive into the Word of God. We're going to come, we're going to worship, we're going to pray, we're going to read a text, and then we're going in, verse 1. And I'm excited to do that. Let's pray. Father, here we are today, and here we are, we're about to go, as your people, on a radical and intentional journey through this beautiful book, this gigantic book of the faith of Ephesians. Lord, I just want to celebrate right now that you truly are the God of institutions and systems, and I thank you for the way that you have systematically put this book together in such a faithful way. I thank you, Lord, that we can look to the first three chapters to know who we are. And I thank you, Lord, that right after that, we can know what you've called us to do. And then I thank you in your love and in your simplicity that you then follow up immediately with how we defend these two precious gifts of knowing who we are and what we're to do so that Satan doesn't thwart them. Lord, I'm praying for a radical focus from the people of God. Lord, a radical focus where, uh, Lord, we just come in here and we're hungry for your word and we're hungry to grow in your word. Help us to continue to move away from being sermon evaluators into being sermon participators, Lord, engaging in the word in our hearts, applying it when we leave today in our lives. I do pray, Lord, that this would not be a falling on deaf ears, but that every single soul that's breathing oxygen right now would go this week and would open up their Bible and that they would read through for 35 minutes. Lord, our fourth graders have 30 minutes required reading a day. Help us to read the book of Ephesians for 35 minutes to see what you have for us. And then finally, God, I pray that you would use me as your limping and broken vessel to open up this book in such a faithful way that no matter how much or how little we've read it, that we would have an encounter in Ephesians like we've never had before.